Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford, and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. In March 2020, I interviewed Amigo Bob Contesano. I had chased Amigo for about a year for this interview after being riveted by his talk at EcoFarm. Amigo, from the podium, declared that Robert Vandenbosch was murdered by the pesticide industry and its friends in University of California Agriculture. This interview is about two towers of influence. Robert Vandenbosch, the UC entomologist who was working on real integrated pest management and not the bullshit, cover your ass, meaningless IPM of today. Van paid the price for calling out infiltration of our academic food and farming system in his pivotal book, The Pesticide Conspiracy. And Amigo Bob, who passed away just a few days ago. Amigo's life was about educating about soil, because nothing is as important as healthy soil. Maintaining living soil puts the chemical agriculture industry out of business. The pesticide industry has corrupted our agricultural universities so that every agricultural entomology department repeats the misleading and distracting message that poisons are safe if you get the dose right. Again, complete BS, because what happens in the field is never reflective of research studies that omit much data and information to favor industry products. This is a lightly edited interview because Amigo is so important, the loss is so great, and our talk was really fun. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Amigo Bob Contesano. I am so honored to know you, to be a part of EcoFarm, which is where I had heard about you originally. Can you just tell me a little bit, Amigo, about your, your founding efforts and how that's all played out and panned out over the years? How many hours do you have? <laughs> I'll, I'll make it brief. Okay, so my role in organic agriculture goes back 51 years. And in that period of time, I've participated and started a bunch of projects, uh, 16 nonprofits and for-profit projects, of which EcoFarm is one of them. And it came about because I helped start CCOF almost 10 years previously. And CCOF, all I thought we were going to be an educational and uh, celebratory organization, turned out to be a regulatory organization. Um, not all by their own choosing, but it is what came. And so I felt like we really didn't have an opportunity to get together and educate and celebrate. And the other piece that's important is that that 1970s, there were no opportunities for farmers to speak at a conference. There was no women speaking at conferences. There were no people of color speaking at conferences. It was all brought to you by the experts, predominantly University of California, who brought their wisdom and dispensed it and uh, sponsored 100% by the petrochemical industry. Um, so all the conferences that I would go to uh, were all basically promoting the use of chemicals. And the very, very, very few tidbits of non-chemical use uh, stemmed from much older research, stuff that was 30, 50, 
100 years old. And they were including it because they still hadn't figured out a way to successfully poison it better than they had with the non-chemical approach. But basically, agriculture was being told virtually 100% that you needed these chemical inputs in order to be successful. And they were buying it. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't speaking to a, to a vacant building. There's a lot of farmers in these rooms. And that was very frustrating. And then two signature opportunities uh, presented themselves. One, which I wish I'd been there longer, but Washington Tilth, which was one of the original organic activists and certifying groups and based in Seattle, uh, held a couple day conference. I got to go to a little more than a half day of it. And it was totally different. It was like, oh, here's farmers talking to farmers and women. And we're talking about what's going on, good and bad. And, you know, no BS from the powers that be. What year was this? Mm, I'm going to say mid-70s. Oh, okay. But at any rate, I was told about it. And I was a member of Washington Tilth, and they had produced right around that same time, The Future is Abundant, which is an amazing, still super valuable how-to uh, agriculture and homesteading and everything. It's an amazing book. And um and I got to know some of the people who were involved in organizing that book and eventually that meeting, Tilth Producers, I guess it was called then. And um, so I went to that and got to know some more people and thought, well, this is a much better way than the conferences I've been to in California. And then a year or two later, I hitchhiked to the Acres USA conference, which at that time was always being held in, in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, I got there and I, was in a totally different world. I'm not a Midwest grain farmer by any stretch or a dairyman or, or a woman. And it, but yet, this, Acres made an effort to actually address a broader uh, spectrum of topics with very little from the government or university and the predominantly from the industry and the people that manufactured and provided the consultation for the organic. And at that point, they were calling it the eco-farming industry. And there were some organic farmers, but it was a mix. And it was, despite the fact that I felt a little bit out of place, it was an eclectic, wonderful experience. <clears throat> and I thought, well, why can't we have something like this in California? Oh, and, and, and the other part of it was it was it was still a conventional conference that had, you know, all just crap food and <clears throat> in a hotel and, you know, in the middle of a city. And, you know, it just didn't address the things that were important to me, but they did pique my interest. And so I thought, why can't we do that? Something like that in California. So in 1980, my friends, uh, uh, Martin Barnes was the main one and Andy Scott and George Stevens and Sarah Atkinson were all organic farmers in the Cape Bay Valley around Woodland and Davis. And we were getting together about something. Uh, I was uh, doing organic farm supplying already at that point. I'd started Peaceful Valley and that might have been why I met up with them. Maybe we were going to transfer some goods or something. But anyway, we talked about the value and the need to have a meeting, get together and know each other. And it turned out I was in kind of a unique position because I got to know a whole bunch of organic farmers that didn't know each other because I was supplying them inputs and advice. And I ended up with, you know, clients and friends all over the West Coast. And um, so they said, well, you know, yeah, let's do that. And and uh, Martin published a uh, alternative newspaper, I think it was a monthly, called The Flatlander out of Davis. 
he had uh, Robert Crumb. Art Crumb was his uh, our cartoonist. But at any rate, so uh, Martin and I, Martin ran a press. He also helped start the food co-ops in Davis. And that's what I had also done a whole bunch of work on in co-ops prior to getting into farming. So we have a natural affinity about that issue. And, uh, and then these other farmer friends of ours that farmed around were all you know, the original elders are now elders in organic farming. They're the originals. And so at any rate, they kind of basically talked us into the idea of let's have a one day event, which was uh, Martin had a friend that was a fireman in winters and got permission to use the firehouse for the day. And we rolled the truck out and then filled it up the room with the chairs. And I invited a good friend of mine, Everett Dietrich, known as Deke, who was the founder. Well, interesting how's this? He's a compatriot of Robert Vandenbosch and a very close compatriot, a good friend, and also the founder of Rincon Vitova Insectary, uh, now in Ventura, California. And his daughter, Jan Dietrich, is the other partner in that business. And at any rate, uh, Deke, as he was known, uh, was a University of California entomologist, biological control specialist in the 40s and 50s and 60s and then got fed up with the system for good reason uh, and left it and started the world's first uh, insectary so that this could become commercialized instead of just educational, which is its own important story, part of which is covered in that book by Vandenbosch. Let's segue right into Vandenbosch. That's, uh, I heard you speak about Vandenbosch last year, not last year, uh, the previous year at EcoFarm, mm -hmm. and you knocked my socks off. Everything that you were saying was something I'd suspected. So tell me about that relationship, Deke and um, Vandenbosch. Yeah. Uh, boy, it, it, this, it, in my life, this is probably two of the most important people I ever met, and partly because it, they had a lot of affinity and inspiration for what I do. So full background on those two guys, then. Let's do that. Yeah, the best I can. It's a big conversation, but but Vandenbosch comes out of a lineage of entomologists um, generically known as pinheads, which is because they would pin the insects and identify them, and that was compared to what was known as dusties, which were the entomologists who just spray the shit out of stuff and didn't really care what the beneficial insects were, for example. So, so Van uh, learned from a whole bunch of his teachers in the 40s and 50s. And at that time, the University of California had two division, well, had a division in two locations. Uh, the Division of Biological Control, which was headquartered uh, in Berkeley, actually in Albany at the um, Giltrack, which was the research uh, station for both UC and the USDA back in the day, um, which still, as you know, is still still part of it, at least it's still an agricultural use. Um, and it has a, a tremendous history, which needs to be more divulged. At any rate, Van, as he was known and liked to be known, was an ardent student of these the original biological control entomologists. They went back to the 1800s, the very, very first effort for biological control in the world, or at least in the United States and claimed to be in the world, was for the, was the use of a, a Vidalia beetle, which was a, like a ladybug, but a related species, 
that attacked the cottony cushion scale, which was a major, major problem in citrus all through Southern California and Central Valley uh, in the late 1800s. And as it turned out, the Vidalia beetle was under natural biological control in multiple places where citrus had been established previously, both its native home in, in, in China and that part of the world, and also where it had been transplanted to things like Australia, where there turned out there was this beetle and other insects that ate the heck out of this scale. Scale is a really important bug. It, uh, it sucks the juice out of the foliage and it leaves a sticky honeydew's tar, which then causes soot on the plant and makes it so it can't do photosynthesis and also makes much of the fruit unsellable. So it's a major thing and they've been spraying for it for a long time, but it really got to be a problem when they started spraying for another pest. It was, it became known as a secondary pest in, which became about because the spraying for the first pest killed the natural predators of the city of the scale of the cottony cushion scale. And so, so this bug exploded because they were using really strong uh, and actually pretty damn effective insecticides at that point in the late 1800s in California. They used to do tent fumigation with carbamides, carbamates, and a lot of really toxic shit. And it, and it would knock out the predators as well as most of the pests, but the predators would be knocked out for a longer period of time and the pests would come back roaring. Anyway, they were spraying like crazy. Everyone likes to think of the idyllic 1800s. No fucking way. Wow. Every crop all over the world that was commercialized, uh, not every, but most, were being sprayed heavily. Uh, some with some really nasty, toxic stuff. Other stuff, maybe by the luck of the situation, was botanicals. But biological control was virtually unheard of. Uh, it just wasn't being done. And even though the vast majority of pest management on the planet, by far the vast majority, 99.9% .9 of it is done by insects versus insects or fungus versus insects or all these other competitors. It's only when human beings get in the way and interrupt the biological balance is when the pest starts to become pestiferous. Pests are under control all over the planet because they've evolved with the stuff that eats them. But when they get moved to a new place or that new place gets sprayed so much, one of these new bugs gets gets adapted, gets going. And oftentimes, especially when they transplant these bugs that come in with fruit or you still have this problem, all this stuff that keeps showing up today, people bring stuff innocently into the United States from foreign countries and they bring, bring the bug with them. And unfortunately, they generally don't bring its predator or parasitoid. So these bugs get established all over the place. We're having that problem right now with citrus greening disease right based on a cella that was brought here accidentally at least i assume it's accidentally it's hard to know but yeah you just never know about all this stuff there's a lot of players in this game yeah but but at any rate so biological control was just basically unknown these entomologists had done the written the books on the subject and done the basic research and van Bosch was one of the original students in this and he got totally enthralled with it as well as Deep, Everett Dieter. They did most of their work, well, actually they did both, but most of it in Riverside, that's where Deep grew up. And then Van got transferred up to Berkeley to be the uh, head of the department and to have the majority of the research based out of Berkeley. And they had a pretty good sized staff at one point. I'm gonna say like 15 professors and then a whole bunch of research assistants. 
it was they were doing some serious stuff and do you know do you know who was funding that you were university of california taxpayers okay good okay which in and of itself is its whole story i know i know (laughs) at that point point in time yeah the university was getting is still getting funded by uh by taxpayers and that's a good chunk of the reason why there is no division of biological control anymore although i'm getting ahead of myself the the next part of this is that these guys start doing outreach and they're going all over the world finding beneficial insects in their native habitat with the pests and then evaluating them and then bringing them back here and and putting them in quarantine to make sure they don't create problems and if they don't create problems and they don't attack native insects uh, and they're able to be cultivated which is a whole its own set of problems uh, then they've been reared up and released for the control of pests and that's the first part of Anna Bosch's book is all these success stories of what happened when they found the parasitoid that got this particular wasp or rather the wasp they got that got a particular uh, scale insect or a or an aphid or a fly or a white fly all these bugs have their native range and in those native ranges they're not pests so what they do is they go back to those spots and they find who their hosts are and then they bring those back and uh, rear them up and if they're successful they introduce them and we have been benefited by hundreds of these introductions so this is how i got into the story at that point i didn't know uh van yet but i got to know deke because deke had started this um private insectary rincon vitova insectary which at that point was in oakview california which is near ventura and deke and his then partner jay blem started this project they were both biologically oriented entomologists and they wanted to see this beneficial insect idea be available to farmers since even if the university did the research unless the bug established naturally and easily it would require the farmer to release them multiple times which there wasn't an, enough financial support for at that time so uh any rate deke started this business deke and jake and then they started rearing these bugs and then started advertising it and i read about it Thank God in the whole earth catalog. <laughs> Stuart Brand. Yeah. Here's here is out farming and um there I, nobody nobody in our area knew anything about biological control, nobody at the farm advisor's office. Nobody. There was no organic farm supplies. Zero. And so, you know, unless you just happen to hear about it, well, you wouldn't have known. Well, there's this insectary in Ventura, California that raises good bugs, that eats bad bugs. I was like, well, this is awesome. And that's how naive I was. I didn't really even know the difference switched the two at that point, but I started reading and I found a lot of interesting information that was backed up both what the insectary had to say, plus what a lot more things, including Vandenbosch's work, which were even more avant-garde because they were working with bugs that hadn't yet gotten commercialized. So at any rate, we got into some bug pressure. I was farming six acres of vegetables in Yuba City. It's my first effort at farming. I was way over my head. Uh, thank God I had a farm partners, two partners, two brothers who were uh, had some farming experience, although not in vegetables. So we had to learn that one together. And a Hispanic guy who was amazing, Jose, just knew as they do, they know what they know. They're, and usually they're much more brilliant and uh, efficient than us white folks. Um, so at any rate, we muddled through, but then we got into some pest problems. And it was difficult to find organic pest control things. And some of them were too toxic for my taste blood, which by the way, all those eventually got banned because none of us organic farmers wanted to use tobacco dust or uh, 
nicotine sulfate, and there was three or four of these other ones. Or they might have been organic and that they were natural. They were definitely too toxic. So we banned all that stuff eventually. But so there I was going, what do we do? Well, I ended up calling this guy up and ended up in these long conversations where they provided free consulting. And I learned about controlling bugs and one, learned where to go read more and ordered up some bugs, different species. And in some cases, had tremendous success within a couple of weeks. Like, oh, my God. And this was a big deal because we were renting from my friend's grandpa, who was, who, although he had started farming before the era of chemicals, had become a completely entranced chemical user and thought we were nuts to be organic farmers. Although he had been there before, tried to talk us out of it, but he really was wanting his grandsons to get back into agriculture. So he put up with these hippie ideas. But when we saw that we actually controlled some bugs that he didn't know how to control that was a chemical, he became much more supportive, which was really a big deal for us. So at any rate, so I got to know Deke and, and Jack, and they were just amazing. Just like, yeah, life jackets in an ocean. And I found out they did that for a lot of other people, and I had no idea. So, but I got to read about Van. And then uh, uh, Grandpa Rouse, C.O. Rouse, the guy that owned the farm, he, he wanted to move back onto his farm. At any rate, so he wanted to take his farm back over, which I don't blame him. So we needed another farm. And so we went looking around, we found another semi-abandoned farm that had been, been farmed called Hoon's Gardens, and farmed by Mr. Hoon's for mm, three or four decades. And he passed on and his wife wasn't interested in farming it, so we took it on. And then the new, the new place we took on was had an orchard, and it had a large walnut orchard, at least for us, at six acres of walnuts that were producing, and it had some really serious problems. And I didn't know much about Wallace at that point. And went and talked to my neighbors, who, thank God, were sympathetic. But the only thing they knew was how to use chemicals. And they knew what problems I had, but they didn't really have any idea. And just kind of put this in time conceptually, we were the only organic farmers in our county. And the next closest farmers grew rice in a different county. I mean, there was nobody doing this then. So, you know, we were up against it. Um, that said, I said to my wife, Jan, who's now known as Kalita, I said, um, well, I'm going to go talk to the farm advisor. His name was Larry Fitch. And uh, I'm going to find out what I can about growing walnuts. Because I don't really know, organic or chemical. And, you know, as I said, I already was committed to organics for, geez, over a decade at that point. So I want to see, I made an appointment, went to see Larry Fitch, the farm advisor specialist in walnuts. And in about 45 minutes, he had me completely convinced there was no way to grow walnuts without chemicals. I mean, he had just brainwashed me in 45 minutes. And I'm not stupid. I went in there with plenty of questions and looking for answers and knew about biocontrol. And, you know, and I just, but I walked out of there, I went back and saw my wife. I said, honey, I think the way we're going to be able to farm these things is with chemicals. And she said, well, Screw that. We're just not going to farm them then. We'll just let them go to go away, which was a pretty strong statement. Thank you, Kalita, for having stepped up there. I probably would have folded. But she said, no, we're not going to do it. And I said, all right, I had to go tell Miss Soon. And she said, well, I haven't been sprayed for a few years, so I guess they'll be okay for now. Do you remember what they were using back then on walnut trees? Oh, God, like seven or eight different materials, Xyram and Xanab and was that all insecticide or fungicide too? Insecticides and fungicides. Were they systemic? Were they systemic back then? No, systemics weren't, I don't think, around yet. If they were, I'm not aware of it. I don't think so. Yeah, they had a whole handful of stuff they were using. They were, 
Yeah, uh, cystox, really toxic stuff. Oh my God, that stuff is so toxic. I had a friend sprayed it and ended up in the hospital. Incredibly toxic. I mean, the, the, the problems in the 60s and 70s were ridiculous, just absolutely ridiculous. I got sprayed by a, a, a prop airplane in the middle of July, in the middle of a hot afternoon, because he was he missprayed the neighbor who had the peach orchard. I didn't have a peach orchard. And I couldn't get I couldn't get any redress other than went to the hospital. Oh, that's my redress. So anyway, oh yeah, I could tell you hours of stories. Can I just step in on something on that? The the reason I think that the problems um are less so now is because a lot of the stuff is systemic and I think that they invented that systemic stuff to prevent liability, you know, from people getting uh hit with it. I think that's true, although they also they also realized that those things, those older things were either becoming ineffective or more difficult to manufacture and dispose of, or there was resistance. So, it, uh, so yes, it's a combination of things. And yeah, the less people are fully early exposed, the less likely they are to complain. But it was just nuts back then. I, I just, so many times I was getting sprayed at, you know, trying to be an organic farmer, um, which is what got us to finally come up with a, uh, an inadequate but starting place buffer zone, uh, which wasn't enough, but it got the, at least the neighbors notified of the risks they were taking spraying us. But anyway, what was I telling this for? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So I was ready to start spraying, and it was getting to be a uh, leaf uh, coming out like March, which is a time for fungicides, and and I just I didn't I didn't do it. I'm a procrastinist in that regard cancer uh, went sideways and uh with cleo was totally happy with she's glad i didn't and uh we had we had a young baby not even a year old at that point and or maybe she was a year but you know we're we don't want to be exposed to this stuff so bounce along we went past fungicide season and now it's getting to be may and now it's insecticide season and in more growing vegetables and in one day boxes uh for University of California pickup truck. I'd never been visited by one of them. I didn't know what to expect. But it turned out this guy, Bill Barnett, got out. And I didn't know the term yet, but he was a pinhead. You know, he introduced himself. He said, Larry Fitch sent me. I, I'm interested in talking to you because we're looking for walnut trees that aren't being sprayed. And I said, you are? And he said, yeah. I said, well, we got them right here. As far as I know, they haven't been sprayed in four or five years. So he was real interested and a real nice guy. And he said, the reason we're interested isn't necessarily just about the walnuts, but we're developing the first IPM manual, integrated pest manual for agriculture in the United States. And we're doing it on pears because they're so heavily sprayed. And we want to show pictures of beneficial insects. So we've been going into pear orchard after pear orchard and we can't find them. So we're hoping that we might be able to find some in an unsprayed orchard. And I said, well, we got, not only do we have unsprayed walnuts, we have unsprayed, or at least no insecticide sprayed peaches uh, and pears and apples and figs and plums. And, and also our vegetables aren't sprayed. Bill got real interested. So he said, well, great. So he started looking around and he had a sweep net and checking things out. He brought back a few bugs to me I'd never seen before and he said, yeah, yeah, this this is an ashy gray lady beetle. And I was like, well, what's that do? Oh, it eats aphid and eats scale and soft-bodied insects. I found them in the 
crotch of this apple tree, I mean, this uh, walnut tree I was looking in, and then he, he look, comes around a little bit more, and he goes, and this is a lacewing larva, and it's uh, eating a, a caterpillar. And I'm like, really? Because I had bought lacewings, but I didn't realize they ate caterpillars. And so he hung around for the afternoon, and then he said, you know, I'm going to come back in a couple of days. I'm going to bring a photographer. And I cool. What am I going to lose? So he came, Bill and this guy, Jack Kelly Clark, who turned out to be the University of California's ace, best uh, insect photographer, the man, and has, has credited for thousands of pictures in the UC system. I mean, he, if you need a picture taken, well, he's retired now, but you need a picture taken about bugs, he was the guy. Well, anyway, Jack Kelly Clark, Jack Kelly, hung around there for days and took, I don't know how many pictures, set up all this intricate photography stuff. You know, this is back in the 70s. It wasn't very simple. And it turned out that a whole bunch of them were very useful. <laughs> and in an irony, the IPM manual, which we still have, which was published by the University of California with federal funding, uh, the, the very opening page is, the, is a picture of a lacewing arm, uh, lacewing larva eating a caterpillar a larva on a squash leaf. Well, you can't tell it's a squash leaf, except that we could. And they were like, all right, look, look this one here. This is from your orchard over here. And we ended up with about 15 pictures in the beneficial insect section. I, I made lifelong friends with these guys. They were like, cool, you're not spraying. We're looking for people who aren't spraying. And so that, you know, cool. And it's a great relationship. The book came out. It, but, you know, that's about as far as it went. But I I, uh, I asked Bill if he knew this guy, uh, or maybe he told me, this guy, Robert Vandenbosch. He said, oh, yeah, I work not directly underneath him, but I work in part of the University of California that is integrated with the biological control program. So I said, so could you introduce me to him, please? Because I said I'd gotten to know uh, Everett Dietrich a bit. And he knew Dietrich, of course. And um, so he said, sure. So we made an appointment. I drove down there and met up with both of them. And they were all pretty much housed in trailers because uh, there was, I don't know, but enough room. But they had classrooms. And I just became a lay student. I didn't even sign up. I just started going to classes and meeting people. Uh, and it turned out I was the only farmer ever showing up there. It was kind of sad. But but they on me, took me on really strongly because I had a practical background and I wanted to use their ideas as much as possible. So I, I got to know more and more of them. And one day, another man came with a graduate student. And they said, oh, we want to do a project here on your farm and some other ones. He said, we're trying to control the walnut aphid, which is uh, a major pest in, 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 um, in walnuts. And we were having that as a problem, although it wasn't a major problem. We were having it. And the stuff we had done previously hadn't controlled it. And they wanted to bring a parasitoid that uh, turned out Vandenbosch had found in Iraq in the hopes that it would establish and control this aphid, which, as it turned out, was a pretty major problem, particularly in southern San Joaquin Valley. We're in the northern San Joaquin, Yuba City, actually Sacramento Valley. And the farther south you got, the more desert-like it is, the better that pest does. And so they weren't really sure how the aphid would be controlled, but they wanted to try it on ours. And by that time, I turned them on to some other organic walnut growers, and they went and connected with them. And so that was the summer of 75. And um, 
they release these little wasps and they put them up around four or five of them. Yeah, about right in the orchard. And then these little wasps hatched out. And then they went out and you, I couldn't see them. They could with their powerful binoculars, or not binoculars, but mic microscopes. They went out and uh, and looked for them and found them and found them. And they got all excited because the wasps were parasitizing the, the aphids. And once that happens, then you start the next cycle because the wasp, a parasitoid by its definition, is a beneficial insect that hatches out of its host. So the adult beneficial lays its egg in the host, in this case, an aphid host, the walnut aphid parasitoid, trioxys, would lay its eggs in the walnut aphid adult. And then out of that, the uh, larva of the parasitoid, parasitoid would eat its way out and hatch out as another adult and be hungry and want to go, go to eat. Uh, and so that was the next thing to eat would be more insects. It also turned out that they needed nectar and pollen. And Vandenbosch had discovered this when he was raising them in the insectary in Berkeley or in Albany. And so he said, we need to also provide extra nectar and pollen, which turned out to be molasses and bird's yeast. Uh, so you would make a, a concoction? Yeah, and spray it on limbs where they could get to it. So anyways, this is all just the blind leading the blind to some degree. But they're like, yeah, let's do this. And, Let's see if they multiply, and they did start multiplying right away, which is really crucial. And then it turned out that they were multiplying in most of the sites rapidly. And the only places they had had this problem previously, as well as there'd be some spray drift, or the farmer would panic and spray that orchard, and of course, then it killed the good guys as well as the bad guys. And this has been an ongoing problem for valve control forever, because so it gets sprayed out and. That's why they wanted these abandoned places and particularly farms that were going to manage it. So they loved working with us because we were their allies and they didn't have any allies. You'd think they'd have a ton of allies, but this had not become a popular topic yet, unfortunately. No. Well, and also, I just I keep thinking about the expense of this. It must have been, I know the taxpayers were doing it. So it's interesting to me that um, the funding of things, how that changes the story. So I love it. I love it. I love hearing this. Cool. Well, I'm going to tell you a funding factoid here, which would be important in this. So let me just tell you a bit more about the bug. So the next concern is, are they going to overwinter? Because Iraq is a lot drier and warmer in most winters than they are in Sacramento and San Joaquin Valley. So they have to wait a whole nother spring to find out. And lo and behold, most of them survived. So it was like, fuck yeah, this is working. And by the end of the second season, the aphid was under control. It into, and well, not only was it under control where it was released, enough of the aphids populated, they moved into the other orchards. And for reasons they didn't understand at the time, they could still tolerate the pesticides. And so they were actually, what? yeah, they were controlling the aphid, even though they were getting sprayed by other stuff, which probably by now they know why that is, but at that time they didn't. And, but it was doing it. So pretty soon, the university put out a notice to walnut growers, stop spraying, you don't need to. Uh, this aphid's under control from this biocontrol program. And of course, not everybody stopped right away, but eventually, apparently, they did, because nobody sprays for walnut aphid anymore. And, but, okay, so check this out. At that time, somebody did a survey, I don't know who it was, entomology department or something, the average annual cost to walnut growers in California for controlling the aphid was a, a million dollars. 
So a million bucks, which today would be a lot more money. Okay, the entire program of Vandenbosch going to Iraq, finding the parasitoid, bringing it back, learning how to grow it, growing up in the insectary, having employees go out and release them in the fields and all the follow-up work, and for the next three, two years, cost $5,000. Get out of here. Yeah. Get out of here. It did. <gasps> and this is why it was such a threat to the pesticide industry. Exactly. So when Van de Bosch wrote his book, Annual Profits of Pest Control Corporations were between two and four billion. Yeah. Now imagine what that That's when he wrote the book yeah. in 78. And so now, yeah, like with everything, it's going to be, they're just, yeah, okay, so go ahead. Wow, that's amazing. Well, and as you would see in Van Bosch's books, not the popular ones so much, but his technical ones, show that the same situations happen in all these other crops, citrus and avocados sure, and, sure. Uh, and uh, cotton and alfalfa. They were able to control the pests, not always 100%, but the majority of the time without uh, pesticides and get better control for cheaper money you know and, and so i mean it was like this is a no fucking brainer but he was probably naive naively saying this is great news everybody should get on board was he i don't think he was naive i think he was just enthusiastic i think he no he no he couldn't be naive because he was up against them right from the very beginning and he knew their power they, oh yeah i mean i, I sorry is it let me make sure that I, I, I can't, I get these confused. In the pesticide conspiracy, is there a story about how the uh, pesticide industry disrupted the cotton biocontrol program in the Imperial Valley? Is that in there? Um, and I don't know. That, I can't remember. I, I, I can't remember. It doesn't mean no, but I can't remember. All right, well, I'm going to just say I don't think it's in there. But here's basically what happened. Because Dietrich was working for the University of California, and he was the one that told me this. But I think I think uh, Van published a cleaned up version of this. But so cotton was the main crop in the Imperial Valley, which was all pesticide sprayed. And at that point in time, there were 12 or 13 pesticide spray application companies using helicopters and airplanes, dust mostly. And that because cotton had some serious, serious pests. But the main one was this cotton leaf perforator which didn't at that point have a natural control. And cotton was being grown by the grossest of methods and not just cotton, all these crops. Everybody was taking this modern miracle pesticide stuff and using it. Sometimes it worked great, sometimes it didn't. So they were spraying cotton leaf perforator, but as it turned out that pesticide they were using, which I think one of them was malathion, but there were a bunch of them that were being used, the ion family that had they were very broad spectrum and they killed lots of beneficial insects. And alfalfa was commonly being grown in rotation, which actually turns out to be a fantastic beneficial insectary crop, but it was being sprayed also. And so there was no chance for the beneficials to build up except in places that didn't get sprayed. And the desert is pretty harsh as far as an environment for habitat. So basically it was pretty close to sterile and it was made more sterile by spraying. So, University of California saw this runaway pesticide train, Van Bosch being the head guy, and God, I can't think of the guy before him. He was amazing, but he wasn't an activist. He was a, he was a technician. He was a genius, but uh, he wasn't an activist. His name will come up. Um, 
At any rate, he, um, they decided that they wanted to work on biological control, and they had some compatriots in, uh, in Mexico, where cotton was common in Guatemala, and uh, they had found some parasitoids for the perforator uh, in southern Mexico. So they started a program where they raised the parasitoids in California, and they also learned how to strip crop some of the alfalfa in so that it could be an insectary, uh, which made a huge difference in the success of both the parasitoid and a bunch of other common beneficials. This cotton had a ton of pest problems, mostly from spraying. Uh, but even, even the non-sprayed or the lightly sprayed crops had a lot of pests. So at any rate, they get this thing figured out over a couple seasons. Uh, they figured out a, a methodology to inexpensively rear and release the parasitoid and, uh, and to successfully control the rest of the pests using uh, alfalfa as an insectary crop, which is still harvestable, but you let it bloom longer and it allows beneficial insects to multiply and you do that in strips right in the field of the cotton and it's phenomenally successful and we still use adaptations of that idea from the 40s. So to make a long story short, and within two more seasons, that perforator pest went away, just wasn't there. Wow. And the, the spray companies one by one went out of business. Okay. Because the farmers were like, we don't need you. And I, all but one of them went out of business in a couple of years. This is the late 40s, early 50s. So now there's one company operating, and the UC Division of Biocontrol is stoked. They've stopped this pest problem and stopped pesticide use and got this thing established in a biological manner. And then something mysterious happens, which turned out not to be mysterious at all. Nobody knew about it, but somebody from the pesticide mafia, which Van eventually figured out who it was, drove a dump truck or multiple dump trucks to southern Mexico, where they scooped up another pest, skeletonizer, cotton leaf, cotton leaf skeletonizer. And um, it, as the name implies, attacks the leaves and defoliates the plant rapidly. Well, this bug appears magically all over the Imperial Valley, like everywhere, like there's not a plant without it on it. Wow. Which the only way that could have happened is they got physically distributed in the Imperial Valley by them that were against having pesticides reduced. Right, because if all of those businesses except one closed, that would not have been unnoticed. No. That would not have gone unnoticed. That's a lot of money. It is, and Imperial Valley is one of the biggest crop areas. So the alarm levels, you know, must have been big in the pesticide world at that point. I would assume. Uh, so at any rate, by the end of that next season, everybody was back in business because UC wow. didn't, didn't have a biocontrol program figured out, which took years to come up with the next solution. Meanwhile, everybody was back spraying. That's what, that's what, that's what got Deke out of the UC system. He, he saw it as some level of fruitless. It just, once you had a success, they would sabotage it. And apparently that happened a lot. And that was the one he told me directly one night when we were both a little bit high on beer.
Um, and you know that's still the case sure. with the UC Ag system. It's uh, an entomology department is very pro pesticide industry, and you say that to people, and they're like, "You're crazy." Yep. But I find that where people are incredulous is often where the truth lies. Yep. You know what they cannot believe is often what is exactly the real situation. You have so, to realize is that whole generation now in the entomology departments have been reared specifically on a diet of pesticide management. They haven't even yeah, probably yeah. had a semester course in biological control. And that's not by coincidence. The Division of Biological Control, now we're getting ahead of ourselves here a bit, but I'll say it was dismantled by the University of California immediately beginning after Van and Bosch's murder. Wow. And it was eventually within this within a period of about three or four years, everybody was either given a golden parachute or transferred to another department where they didn't talk biocontrol with the exception of Miguel Altieri, who is so marginalized, he can get anybody's attention, except students. Um, so, but yeah, that's- Okay, yeah, we're, we're getting ahead. Let's let's go back. Yeah, we, were, um, we are, but I just want you to realize uh, that these guys are insidious and that they they see an enemy and they tackle it. And Van der Bosch became an enemy because he spoke the plain truth, <clears throat> unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, it needed to be said, but it cost him his life. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. So I, I know it. It's past belief. I didn't say all the stuff when I, uh, when I was on the podium there, but I got, I got lots of pieces of this. Um, so at any rate, all right. So I got to got all excited about working with these biocontrol people, and they loved me because I was a farmer and I was involved with CCOF and trying to get everybody interested in this biocontrol thing. And they were finally being some audience. You know, like I got Dietrich to be the sole speaker at the first eco farm. You know, so what did he talk about? Biological control. <laughs> That's great. You know, like, okay, we got to talk about this because most organic farmers at that point hadn't gotten exposed. And even though they weren't interested in it, they'd find a paragraph here or a paragraph there, but not the in depth information you need to actually succeed with this kind of idea. So, so then we, you know, we we went out of our way at EcoFarm to continue to have subjects on that every year. And I'm... so I know the pesticide mafia moves so insidiously and right under our noses. In like it's huge in the beekeeping trade associations. They're run by the pesticide mafia. And people again, there's that deep, deep incredulity that. Um, beekeepers are run by pesticide interests. They don't understand how that can be, but I see it so clearly. I've been like, like losing sleep over this for years. Why does this happen? And then farm groups, you know, definitely, um, you know, the lobbyists, the farm lobbyists. Well, all the ag meetings are produced for and by the pesticide industry. Most, most of them, all, most of the magazines are produced for and by the pesticide industry. All lobbying is done for and by the pesticide industry in conjunction with the Farm Bureau and those Republican bastards. Yeah, I mean, they're in control. They, they provide the funding to the universities. They, you know, they build the buildings. I mean, they, they run, they run the ship. And so, of course, everybody's incredulous because you, it's not obvious. You have to look, well, maybe not that hard, but if you're not paying any attention, you have to look. You have to look really hard and you have to you have to really understand that your faith and trust in something food is misplaced faith and trust exactly very yeah, and misplaced and, and your faith and trust these days is in the higher education community and the lawyers and the 
legislative world. That's where it's all held. The, the knowledge base is now held by those at the top of the pyramid, and which isn't true or accurate, but it is what is. And yeah, I, I understand why people in the beekeeping business don't think they're getting screwed. They, they don't see it that way. They see, oh, they're coming out with pesticides to kill whatever problem we got. Hooray, we got a problem. Well, but Amigo, it goes all the way back to what you were you were describing about uh, pesticide industry being like all the way into the 1800s. That's when they invented entomology departments. And sure. these entomology departments are... Um, are through they see the world through a pest control lens like you've got your pinheads and then you've got your what do you call them dust heads or uh, dust no, no, nozzle heads or dusty no, nozzle heads so that's the same in the beekeeping world okay so yeah the uh, beekeeper or the honeybee entomologists are nozzle heads they're just looking at at honeybees through the lens of how to kill the mite they're not looking at the whole picture that you know honeybees are eating poison of course they're dying of mites they're dying of all sorts of shit but the problem is is that they cannot see because that's not where the funding is directing them the funding is all coming from the pesticide industry and the bee world and it goes to pest control spray can some sort of some sort of chemical to help bees and that's the entire premise is bullshit yeah have you read the war on bugs who wrote that will allen no yeah yeah, Will comes to the conference still. He's in his 80s. He tells his speech not about that subject, but he has. That's a that tells you the whole story. It's a, it's graphically. He he wisely left out the names uh, of the guilty, so he didn't get killed. But um, okay, so Van Van den Bosch. Yeah, but Will 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 Will's documentary book puts you in the knowledge base of how we got in the mess we're in anyway, you know, and it's not all pesticide conspiratorial, but it's certainly a big chunk of it. But farmers, you know, they are sheeple and they follow the trends. You know, I, I was around when, when Roundup was first, the very first year it was available, 1975, and my neighbors just thought it was the most wonderful panacea. I mean, they were so stoked, you know, and I, I don't, they're not alive any longer, but my guess is today they wouldn't be quite so stoked. But but my point is that these things are marketed, you know, as they're going to be effective. Uh, the government's tested them. <laughs> That's a joke. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and the, you know, we wouldn't give you anything that wouldn't be good for you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It, Faith. Yeah. Faith. It's, it's totally nuts. But yes, you're. Welcome to a system that's completely broken. Um, and, and I don't know how, I don't know how to fix it. I mean, the industry is one, one they, it's already done. So now let's talk about Vannebosch and you can see how I think it's done from that perspective. All right, so anyway, I got to know Vannebosch pretty well. <clears throat> By this time, Jerry Brown was uh, governor. And so Van was his advisor. Van was an interesting guy, he was the advisor to to uh, the United Nations, to the Environmental Protection Agency, and he was Jerry's on pesticide issues, and he even organized a couple conferences in Sacramento on biological control and integrated pest management. Van uh, was the was the primary speaker, and so you know I I'd go to these things and hang around these people. I, they were my idols, and other people from that weren't as mm, voiceless as Van were also involved in this 
uh, efforts. And uh, Cinderate, so you know, we get to know him better and better. And I, I get to know a guy, his name's going to remain nameless because he ended up being the ghostwriter for the book. And uh, he told me, oh yeah, Van's, Van's telling me the details here and I'm writing this book. He said, this is a, this is a blockbuster. This is going to get some attention. And the guy I knew, I would call him understated by his nature. Um, but at any rate, he was helping him write it and, and, and did it so without his name on it because he didn't want to have the same risks that Van was taking. But he would show up on her farm and get to know these people better and better. And they don't have a whole lot of allies. So, you know, hanging out with these hippies, that was a comfortable environment, believe it or not, for most. So, so never got along here. And I had moved to Nevada City by this time to farm up in the Sierras, which was cleaner. A wonderful place to farm with my friend's granddads, but it was toxic. And I didn't really want to continue, and my wife didn't either. So we moved to Nevada City and leased a farm, which was a much more difficult place to farm. Uh, poor soils, poor climate, uh, just, just much more difficult, a lot more uh, mammal pressure. Which is why conventional, which is why conventional agriculture wasn't interested in it. They wanted the yeah. prime, yeah, Central yeah, Valley. All the, all the good farming land has been taken up by those that are willing to and able to farm in that environment. I, I just wasn't willing to do it. I, there's plenty of places to lease on that ground, but I, no thanks. So we moved up here, and um, I, so in 76, I opened up Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, which was, turned out to be one of the first, if not the first, uh, authentic organic farm supplies in California on the West Coast. And uh, there were a couple other smaller ones, but our, our business was really devoted to providing education and information and supplies for organic farmers. And so, of course, the, the biocontrol people loved that because I was encouraging people to plant habitat and cover crops and, you know, use least toxic pesticides. And there just wasn't many people doing that yet. So what years was this? Uh, I opened it officially in 76. I was doing it in 75. Wow, early, early. Yeah, go. Well, you do what you got to do when you got to do it. Um, and I saw the need. There were just no access. You know, I wanted to buy cover crop seed, and it was just impossible. It's just like one place has one variety or one species. You know, that was just like nuts. Nobody's going to cover crop if you make it so difficult, you know. And they weren't, they weren't making it difficult, but cover cropping had fallen out of popularity because farmers all went to uh, synthetic fertilizers because they were cheap and easy and no-brainers. And even our, our, our guru had farmed before chemicals, knew all about cover crops. He'd abandon them. He said, oh, yeah, we used to do that. So we'd say, so Grandpa, tell us about farming with cover crops, 1935. Oh, that's what we did. Tremendous information. Some of the best information I ever got. But they didn't do that anymore. We bought a bag of fertilizer down at the farm supply. And, and the farm supply sold them. This goes on to your thing about soils. Sold them stuff that would basically pump the plants up with too much nitrogen, and they'd be more susceptible to diseases and insects. But nobody told you that because they got to sell you pesticides and fungicides later. The treadmill. Yeah, completely. So fertilizers was a good place to start them on, you know, because it, it was easy, convenient. Nobody had ever identified any negatives about it. 
uh, and it was a lot cheaper than hauling manure or cover crops. And so, yeah, there was a lot of positives to it. I, I get it. Grandpa Rouse, you know, he was practical. He's just like, yeah, nobody's paying me extra to grow these walnuts without fertilizer. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, Grandpa. They're going to pay us extra, but we're going to fertilize them with cover crops and compost. Well, you can have at it, boys. I've been there. I'm not doing that. But he would teach us about whatever we wanted to know. Well, it turns out he was he was in the majority. Most people had transitioned at that point away from cover cropping, away from using manures or compost, crop rotations. All that stuff was gone. It was history. I was talking to people that were 75 to 100 years old trying to find out what how people used to farm because you couldn't find people doing it today or, or, or difficult to do that. So any rate, so Van Bosch is going to publish this book. Uh, I'm running this farm supply, um, Peaceful Valley Farm Supply. And uh, and Van is getting ready to publish a book. And my friend Richard, oops, I say his whole name, Richard, gets a hold of me and says, Van's going to get, go on a national publicity tour for this. Uh, I think it was Hoffman, major publishing house, though, Houghton Mifflin. I don't remember. Big boys out of New York. Uh, they were going to put them on a worldwide tour, but starting in the United States. And um, yeah, and starting in California, since that's where he lived. And he could get on uh, the, the most active uh, talk show station in Northern California, which is KGO AM Radio, which my dad used to work on, so I had a little bit of connection there. And um, any rate, so they got Van got signed up to talk, you know, on the show. And he was on their most popular show. And they had him scheduled in for uh, 9 o'clock. And it was such a powerful, people were so pissed off within an hour. So many people are calling. They decided to hold hold Van over for two more hours, which was wow. which was action packed. I was I was in a pickup truck listening to it. I didn't have any other way to find out. And and when it was intense, people were pissed. People were really pissed. And these are just consumers, and he's just going down the litany of how bad it was. You know, and he didn't at least, I don't remember, well, no, he didn't, he didn't, he did mention Standard Oil. I don't remember if he mentioned anybody else on air, but in his book, of course, of course he did, he mentioned all kinds of real life people and said this and such and such, this person did this on this date at this situation, um, which was very dangerous to do, remarkably dangerous and something I've learned not to do because I did get in a similar set of trouble because I spoke up at one point. I'm not going to talk about that today, but they tried to kill me too. Um, the, um, but at any rate, so Van's like speaking up, you know, and he's going around and he's going to be, he's on KGO, we're like all excited. I called my friend who ran the bookstore in town and uh, asked him, I said, can you get this book from the, the distributor? And he looked up on some piece of paper that he had. And he said, yeah, it shows they have them in stock. I said, great, uh, give me a couple copies, please. And he said, sure. And again, everything was done by telephones those days, so things took a little longer. He got a hold of them. He ordered it uh, along with other books. The order arrived, and there was a zero next to the pesticide conspiracy. Well, at that point in time, I didn't know really what to think of that. So they didn't have it, or they didn't ship it. Well, meanwhile, okay, so Vandenbosch is on this thing nonstop for three hours. The following day, Chevron bullies their way. They've been an advertiser on KGO for decades, and a big employer in Richmond, which has a lot of audience for KGO. And uh, they get an hour rebuttal time. What? Oh, wow. Yep. 
But of which a bunch of that is a bunch of people calling up, giving them shit. I mean, it was pretty effing intense. I'm not even sure how I learned that they were going to be on the air, but I did. Okay, so that's like a Thursday or a Wednesday. And Van is going to start his next part of his tour in L.A. on all the L.A. TV radio things starting on the following Monday. So, oh, I forgot to say really an important, important background. Say it. Van and Bosch was the most physically fit person I met up to that point, other than Jack Lane. He was a workout maniac, and he made all the crew and the staff play volleyball at lunch in order to get a minimum amount of workout, and he ran every single day on the track at Berkeley or at, or at the high school, and he was a super physically fit guy. I mean, more so than I'd ever seen anybody other than, than Jack Lane. And so, you know, you knew the guy as like, you know, Mr. Health. And he drank juices and, you know, he ate organic. I mean, he was really into a pretty complete lifestyle, I thought, and way more than I was at that point. So that's a bit of background. So at any rate, Van and Bosch is uh, scheduled to appear on, he's going to be on four or five stations in, in L.A., and then he's going to go to New York, and then a thing that was all going to go around the country. And obviously he was going to end up creating some kind of backlash wherever he spoke because he didn't hold anything back so on saturday morning van is found dead about 50 feet into the beginning of his run on berkeley high's track he's found dead by another runner they get the uh police department over there police department and uh, um, gets him to the morgue, whereas it turns out, we know this till much later, they never do an autopsy. What? Okay. Okay. No autopsy. We didn't learn that for a long time. That was a piece that came in like, oh, shit, this is more. Okay. So I didn't hear about it that morning, but I heard about it that night. I can't remember how I heard about it anymore. It's kind of like, it must have been a phone call. Um, so Van's dead. And, as it turns out, this is the weekend of the Jonestown Massacre and the, and the Harvey Milk uh, assassination, which pushes the story about Vandenbosch to the back of the second section of the paper, which is screaming about, you know... Both of those things, yeah. About both these things, which are both Bay Area-based, San Francisco-based things. So Vandenbosch is like, it's way way in the back it's a very short article you know and it's just like yeah this guy this professor dies jogging you know and he's on the tour for this book but it's no investigative journalism or nothing it's very simple okay monday morning i call my friend at the bookstore and i said can you find out what's going on with the book meanwhile i start calling around for other places and i find two copies of kaplan's book in, in uh palo alto and I said, reserve them. I'll pay for them. But he couldn't do it with credit cards in. didn't have them. So he said, all right, who do you know? And I had and finally found somebody that they knew. And he said, yeah, we'll hold them for you. Because they only had two copies. And um, and I called a bunch of places. There were people who even had me. And, they, and then my friend at, uh, at the bookstore here in, in Nevada City gets back to me, not that day, but a day or two later. And he says, man, you don't really know what's going on. But but all the books that were sitting in this warehouse in Reno were ordered up and sent to a warehouse 
in uh, Nashville. In where? In Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville, okay. And so the guy, he gets, my friend gets the guy in Reno to check it out, and he says, yeah, this is, in a, this is a good address, but there's no business at this address by that name. But somehow they got all the books, and apparently they did it all over the country. And they didn't, that wasn't hard, that hard to do because they hadn't started as tour yet. Pretty much the only place they were probably on the shelf was the Bay Area. And so at any rate. So they were all crated up and shipped. Yeah, back to, back, back to Tennessee. And who knows what happened to them there, although you can take a guess. Wouldn't be difficult to burn them. So all of those books are gone, and every distributor has a zero on their inventory and availability. I start checking around. I'm like, uh-oh, what is going on here? So I start calling other book distributors, both in other parts of the state and in other states. Everybody's got not available, not available. Now, you know, I was, like, getting more suspicious. You know, I was like, yeah, this doesn't sound right. Um, doesn't sound right. And so at any rate, I did get my two copies. I still have one of them. It's pretty tattered. So you and probably probably his closest associates that you see were probably like everything was, all your senses were going, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Oh, yeah. So I didn't tell you about that. And everybody else, it was, just, it was just a buried story. Yeah, I didn't tell you about what I got. To. So I started calling up my, my and his friends that you see. And everybody is at some version of, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I call his wife up. She's hysterical. She don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, everybody don't want to talk about it. And they're like, yeah, we, well, we can't talk about this. This is, you know, I mean, one friend of mine who stole a friend, stole a wife, eventually said, yeah, we were all sure he'd gotten killed. And then all of a sudden, they all became silent about any of the issues, which Van was by far the most vocal. But they all, you know, if they got interviewed or something, they'd say something. They weren't against commenting on these subjects. They just didn't go out of their way like Van did. But they became, everybody became silent. Everybody, all of them. And a lot of them were pretty vocal people, pretty, yeah, I used to get them to come to EcoFarm. You know, it would just be, well, actually, they came to EcoFarm afterwards, the, after his death. But, but yeah, but they wouldn't talk about Van Bosch. Well, let's just let's just continue down that road. So the the truth is, is that it worked. Oh, completely. The people that could have said something were terrified. Completely. Nobody want to get killed. So it worked. It was it was effective. Yeah, and they destroyed all the books, and they stopped the press release tour, and they got his wife shut up, and they somehow got the Berkeley police to not do their duty, which I'm assuming is just a payoff. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, it's all this stuff is just all connected up. And then by bit by bit, they started taking the bricks out of the wall. And you see Berkeley's and Riverside's Division of Bowel Control completely disappeared. Hmm. How long did that take? About 10 years. They wouldn't do it too fast. They didn't want to make it too obvious. But you could see who was getting let. Well, first off, there, well, conveniently, you can't say this intentional. There was a pretty mass layoff at the university. They had a budget crisis. So they started giving people that were of retirement age golden parachutes. And some of those were UC biocontrol people. Uh, but so that got them out of the way pretty rapidly. And then other people were given either new assignments or uh, early retirement, depending on the situation. 
Yeah, pretty soon. So that budget crisis, what was that from? Did that give birth to um, the change? I can't remember the act where corporations came in and filled uh, filled the finance gap. Yeah, you know, was I that think close that, to that? That it, would have been in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, I think it's later than the, when this all place. So, but it could it could have been because it all overlapped. You know, this was the they didn't fire everybody or lay them all off or anything at one time. It was all gradual. But they stopped funding research. And that was the part that, you know, these guys were now, and women were all just hanging out in the office. You know, they go to meetings and they weren't going, they weren't, they weren't going getting their job done. Now that whole thing, you know, they, they systematically dismantled it. And, you know, Miguel. Who's that? Miguel Altieri, you haven't run into him yet? I think he's retired now. I don't know. I don't know the name. Yeah, uh, he was, he was kind of a cross bridge between the old school entomologists, bowel control people, and the younger group that was in there, but eventually got steered into a different department. He's a, is it now, I believe, retired professor. And you can look him up. He does great work, but he's also highly opinionated. And he'd be one of the few that would tell you a similar story, I'll say that. Uh, whether he'd go into the detail or not, I don't know. But at any rate, most of these people, you know, retired, quit, or died. And a few of them are still around, but they're doing other things. They're not in the universities. So I like to look back at history and see what was, you know, what's happening now. Find the significant factors that created, you know, the current situation. And that's what I like about this terrible story. This was a significant thing. And, you know, most people don't know who Van den Bosch was. And they haven't looked at his book, Pesticide Conspiracy. Nobody had spoken about the pesticide industry like he he did and with all his credentials uh with great you know that should have given him amazing credibility which is i think the main reason that they would have destroyed him in some way i don't think that i don't think that they kill people now but they they certainly you can destroy anybody you know just internet shame them about something they did and it's easy peasy now but back then I could see this industry that is is only uh, uh, it's a remarkably greedy industry and self interested and voracious. It's really it's really parasitic, is what it is. And I can see all those players back then being like just rough and dirty corporate um, monsters, you know. So I don't think that there's any difference now in the fact that that these corporations still run our agricultural system is really telling, you know, and where are the people that are standing up now? There's very few because, you know, I've talked to people that went to ag school at UC Davis and they're like, yeah, I quit. I didn't want to work for Bayer. Right. You know, so it's still the same and it's, uh, it's even worse. It's worse than when um, Van was alive. Oh, no, it's worse. Yeah, much worse. It they bought and sold the whole thing. He was fighting against the last nail in the coffin, but they've got it all in there. They, they, they win. And his credibility was the X factor that none of us have. And, you know, he, he, you know, he, he was Nixon's advisor. I mean, you know, this, yeah. wow. you, know you, just don't, you don't get to that level of, you know, world credibility without being somebody that's special. But he was one of those people who bit the hand that tried to feed him. You know, it's like, and I, Totally appreciate him for doing that, but it also taught me a lesson about being careful about who you victimize. Well, I see. I see that time is really short. That 
pollinators are basically, you know, insect <laughs> insects are the last gasp. You know, like if you can count insects like they do butterflies, you got a real problem. These things are supposed to be uncountable. They're supposed to be so numerous that there's no possible way you can count them. They're the baseline of all nutrition and food and soil and compost and rotting bits of good stuff. They are it. And they're food for all of us, everything, the whole spe the whole planet. They're the food. So this industry that has worked diligently to destroy insects, even just renaming them as pests, is the way that you destroy anything. These guys are good. They're really good. And they took over the honeybee narrative um, you know, decades ago in the United States and then, you know, country by country in the in the EU. They own the narrative there too. Pest bear and the beekeepers and uh, are partners in so many ways. And uh so that's my um place of incredulity is that people don't understand the connect and how powerful this industry is and that they do whatever they want. Yep. They're in charge. So you can do your best to get the information out there. I've gotten to the point where it's just like, well, all right, I put 50 years into this and I did what I could. And it's still, you know, it's it's uh, discouraging. It's encouraging to see that there's been a level of enlightenment. It's discouraging to see how small it still is. You know, when I started, started this thing, there was a, depending on what number you think you know, about one one hundredth of 1% was farmed organically in this country. Now we're at 1% or 2%. It, you know, it's, it's a huge jump, but it's still a tiny, tiny part of agriculture. You know, and, and yet I've actually heard people at Eco Farm meetings say, well, the organic thing, that's already resolved. I'm like, what? Yeah. What world do you live in? <laughs> you know? So if you were like, if you were, you know, in your 20s at this point, have you thought about it? Like, what is the best thing that, young people can be told i think i think it's eat organic like dig into what organic means and get as clean food as you can possibly get yeah that's a good place to start and i, I believe in that and i think that is something it's at least um simple enough that people don't have to put a whole bunch of brain power into it and you can actually do something about it and it's achievable now which wasn't for a long time so yeah young people i mean it, no, I, I, I try not to be too um, hasty, but I will say that young people are just too easily distracted by the problem of the moment or the opportunity or the fun thing of the moment. It takes a rare young person to want to settle down, buckle down, and actually want to do something uh, committed. So you have to start with the simple things, you know, that they can do even if they're not really paying attention. And yeah, one of those is, buy, is who you buy your food from, you know. You, your dollar has a huge impact. It's one of the biggest things you can do with where you spend your dollar. And so many people don't even think about that, much less act on it. So it, uh, yeah, it's essential. So yeah, that's a good place to get them started, you know, and get support organic and then learn to support who those people are that are organic farmers and why you should support them. I'm just reading today, I'm getting myself educated about a whole project I didn't know anything about. Where is it? Uh, I've, I've been suspicious and I had some strange interactions with the fair trade movement and I didn't really know enough to say other than I have people who are in the fair trade business and they have problems with it. But um, 
Let me do something. Shoot, there's a small producers uh, fair trade developing organization worldwide, which is all farmer based instead of middle people based. And it has a way more potential, but it's going to need to get a lot more education out there for it to actually fly. But I, you know, like here today, I learned about this. It's something I've been interested in. I've been working in, in third world countries for decades, you know, and I see even the fair trade of third trade world stuff is not always what it's claimed to be. And, you know, I try to think, well, gosh, the powers that be haven't totally corrupted it, but all of it's run by corporations now too. So, okay, let's support this new project, which where in the hell did I do with that thing? Hold on a second, I gotta find, I gotta read. Yeah, yeah, I wanna know, I wanna know. Yeah, it's important. Well, you know, because it's important because they take over everything. They've taken over organic branding, you know, like the Driscoll's thing, um, you know, and the Good Food Foundation here in, in San Francisco. They took over the Honey Committee as now being run by um, by um, the uh, pesticide industry through Project APSM, big, big pest bear um, organization. Right. I'm unfortunately suspicious about most everything. Yeah. Well, I think caution, you know, I think because it's again, I keep I keep saying these words, faith and trust, because that's where um, major abuse of power always happens. Like abuse of power is something fascinating to me because there's always that point when you could have questioned what the fuck and you don't and then you're done because you've given someone else power over your food or, you know, over something that's important to you and they've abused it, like the whole Boy Scouts thing, you know, like sure. that's all trust. Sure. That stuff can't go on without trust. Sure. Good point. So the, the priesthood in my world is UC Davis, entomologists, and then commercial beekeepers, like um, the scientific beekeeping. They're like, they show up at legislation all the time around the country sure. to say that pesticides are not a problem for bees. And I, I want to out them. Good luck. Good luck. Man, I'm, I'm not saying that <laughs> anything more than it's a, you got you bit off a big bite. Well, you know, I'm 60. I'm happy with my life. I've lived a good life. I've, I've seen amazing things. I've loved a lot. And I feel like you know, I don't know what the answers are, but I just want I want people to see that the food that they think they can is safe to put in their mouth is not. Well, there's too much chemical in it. And if it's killing nature and bees, it's killing us. That's just stupid to think that we're somehow above all that. <laughs> the rules of, of nature don't apply to humans. I think it it does. Um, you were going to say the producers, uh, the fair trade. It's the abbreviations is SPP, SPP, which is a Spanish set of words, which uh, in English is small producers symbol. And you can get to, to their website at SPP.coop. And I found my website a little hard to use, but once I figure it out, there's a lot of good stuff. And my friends at Cafe Mom that do the coffee uh, are the ones that turn me onto it. And it, I'm, I'm excited. I want to see if we get it on EcoFarm agenda. It's, it's the whole thing about, you know, let's really have fair trade for small farmers, not talk about it or, or think we're supporting it. And then it turns out it's not. And this, they, they claim, it seems kind of hard to believe they've got this together so far, but they claim that they have 120 organizations rep representing 500 million farmers or families rather uh, around, the, around the globe. So it seems pretty 
powerful, but I never heard about it. 100% farmer-driven initiative. Just sounds good. That's a lot of farms. I'll say. How many farms? How many? It says the 500 million people. It seems amazing. That seems like That seems amazing. Yeah. But, uh, but if it's worldwide, maybe so. Yeah. Solidarity, dignity, and living wages for farmers. Nice. Those are good words. Yeah. So we'll see. And I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask my friends at Cafe Mall for some more background about it. Okay. I'm a, I feel like I could interview for you forever. I mean, just the history, that's my jam. And you are it. You're it. Um, so I, I'm terrible about nagging people. Yeah, and I'm terrible about responding to stuff. So. <laughs> it took me a year to get you. But I want to finish up. Can we just finish up with your walnut trees? Okay, because trees have a special place in my heart. That's where I learned about pollination was I used to work at Tree People in Los Angeles. And I learned about the magic of what pollination is there. The fact that you didn't spray and that they found native, there must have been native insects all over your trees at that point, way back when is really significant because that doesn't exist. It didn't exist then, which I didn't know, but it exists even less now. Um, and I know that that's, there's no, there's no way we're going to go back. Like the soil is too poisoned and it's, it's full of synthetic um, pesticides, herbicides, and uh, fungicides for anything to be super duper clean anymore. But I wanted to highlight something about trees and ask your, your thoughts about it. So I understand that um, about like when neonics were first invented and, you know, they're synthetic um, insecticides that are inside the system of the tree and the poison is dispensed in the flower, the nectar and pollen. So they've so flowers are poisonous to anything that's going in there for a little nibble of nectar and pollen. And in California, I did a little informal study called all the major monocrop, monocrop brokers and nurseries that were raising just ornamental saplings and found that more than 75% of them prophylactically use neonics and fungicides together and have been for years. They all say, like the ones that would talk to me say, UC Davis says neonics are fine for bees. What do you think about that? Because to me, that's a smoking gun about what's happened to pollinators, because what most people don't see when they see a tree, if they see a tree at all, what they don't see is that's food. Everything flowers, ornamentals flower for a significant part of the year. And when anything goes in there, they're getting a dose, could be low, could be 20 parts per billion. Um, but there's also been a test where they found 862 parts per billion in a crepe myrtle. Because people don't eat that, so they're going to spray it with, you know, who cares? Mm -hmm. So you, understanding what you do about pesticides, mm -hmm. what do you think about that, the fact that trees are systematically treated with systemic poisons? Like, how does that sit with you as a, as a farmer, as a tree person? Because you are. You understand the importance of trees. They're food. Well, well the prophylactic application of anything doesn't matter what it is without actually knowing you have a problem is a mistake it's a marketing tool it, it's that too but but the whole approach of you know kill everything first and don't let anything move is actually not 
a sustainable system, it requires more uh, pesticides over time and or more powerful ones. And that the um, opportunity to actually control these pests without pesticides is still there. It's just a matter of a de uh, decision and a commitment by the owners of the plants to do so. And there's just absolutely no reason to be, you know, annihilating plants with high amounts of systemics, no matter what flavor they are. They're all topically, or they're all uh, problems once they get out into the tissue outside. And insects, or insects, and other things are eating on them. They're they're being affected by it. There's no doubt about it. It's a bad idea. It only makes the manufacturers wealthy. Doesn't really do anything for anybody else, except the people that apply them can do lots of tr trees, lots of pots, without having to pay very much attention because they've got a one-size-fits-all pesticide. So they can apply that and hopefully control for themselves every potential problem that might arrear in a season's time. It's a foolish um, belief. However, it's how people mostly operate. They're trying to cut costs and cut time and get things done without putting the maximum amount of effort into it. They want to put the minimum amount in. And that shortcut approach is what ends up people using poison. I mean, every kind of pest can be controlled without poison. They're in a single bud on a planet can't be controlled without poison every time. But it's a, it's a matter of committing to that, uh, looking for alternatives or developing beneficial insects that can attack and prevent the problems spreading from the plants. And it's also a need to educate the consumer that buying plants that have pesticides in them is not a good idea. It's bad for you, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for your kids. You just got, but you know, that. That's what's needed. Education is all kind of the critical component about moving any of this kind of stuff forward is getting people that are more educated about what the risks are with using those materials and what the alternatives are. And that's how I got into this thing. That somebody, I just got fascinated with the alternatives. Turns out there's a ton of them. You know? And so it's like, yeah, you just have to, you have to reset your mind about what is successful and what what kind of materials or what kind of approach you need to take, but between crop diversity and biological control and plant nutrition and soil health management, irrigation management, all those things add up to whether the plant is healthy or the pest or whether the insect or the human being is healthy or whether it's got a susceptibility. And what we're learning is the more you develop resistance, the stronger the plant is, the less it needs intervention of any form. So that's the key to moving this thing forward. Yeah, you use the word entranced, I think, that people get entranced by these products. And um, and that I think that word is really important because it's basically like the word charmed. It means you're being fooled. The truth lies in longer term, sustainable um, practices, agricultural practices. That's where the truth lies. It's boring, it's long, and it's cheaper. <laughs> oh, you're wonderful. Thank you so much, amigo. I'm really, um, I'm really grateful. I'm glad that we got this time to talk, and I'm going to maybe bug you again, if that's okay. Yeah, you might be able to do that, and just be patient. Okay, I definitely will. I definitely will. And yeah, you're really, I, I don't know if you know, but you're, you're, you're pretty damn important. Um, I'm really glad that we spoke.
I'm grateful for your wisdom and your knowledge. All right, my dear, have a good rest of your Sunday. Thank you, you too. I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening.